Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we pull one more out of the Not Done Yet Patreon vault this time connecting Dominic Dunn and Truman Capote in 1975, where both men are truly in decline stages. Dominic Dunn has not quite yet hit rock bottom to make the changes he will in his third act. Truman Capote, on the other hand, is perhaps realizing the gravity of the release of those chapters of Answered Prayers, burning all his friends in print, and torching all of those relationships so carefully built in one fell swoop. We go a lot of places in this episode, from Hollywood to Key West, Florida, as Truman Capote was playing in that scene, too, in the 1970s. A lot of spiderwebs in this one, including an appearance by Jimmy Buffett, too. It truly is all connected. Let's investigate. Hey friends, it's Alicia, and I am not done yet talking about Dominic Dunn and Truman Capote. This episode has, I think, a really interesting story with a lot of spiderwebs and a lot of names in it to set a little bit of a stage long before Dominic Dunn gets that letter from Truman Capote at his Oregon cabin. This particular story is going to be sourced from Robert Hoffler's fantastic book, Money, Murder, and Dominic Dunn, A Life in Several Acts. This particular piece of the component, I think, is really interesting, not just to describe or unpack this complicated relationship between Truman and Dominic, but also to set the stage with kind of what is happening and, oh God, how all the people and all these connections come together. So I'm taking this bit from Robert Hoffler's book. This is page 77. This is the chapter about David Bagelman, who we've talked about. We're going to get back in to that story as it progresses along Dunn's third act. But remember, David Bagelman stole the, <laughs> stole signed, cheated Cliff Robertson out of money. He was married to Dina Merrill. Like, it all connects, y'all. It may not be linear, but it all connects. From this particular chap, uh, chapter, Bagelman and Purgatory. Starting here, the 70s were not a good decade for Dominic's party card. So much had changed since he arrived in Hollywood in the 1950s. His lavish black and white ball had been forgotten. Unlike Truman Capote's copycat black and white ball, two years later in New York City that 
quickly took on a resplendent aura of urban myth. Worse, Capote did not invite the Duns to his party, a slight that Dominic never forgot. Now remember my theory on this. Truman's Ball was November 1966. At that time, just a few months before, you have Frank Sinatra punching, well, paying the maitre d' George to punch out Dominic Dunn at the Daisy. Frank Sinatra had, by this point, married Mia Farrow. So, as it comes to Truman's exclusive written in his composition book, notebooks that he's planning on his trip with Catherine Graham over the summer. We're going to talk about that, y'all. It's just, Oh, God, it's so much fun. Goodness. Of course, naturally, Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow are going to be a bigger get than Dominic and Lenny Dunn. So, again, Truman does not invite Dominic to his party. Dominic never forgets it. Back to Hoffler. When he was married to Lenny, Dominic received numerous invitations to parties given at Jules and Doris Stein's home. Their house, called Misty Mountain, offered awesome views of Los Angeles and beyond. They did not get more powerful in Hollywood than Jules Stein, who in the 1920s founded MCA, an agency known as the Octopus, even before it acquired Decca Records and Universal Pictures. Dominic signed the Steins guestbook hundreds of times. He had been to all of their daughters' coming out parties and considered himself such a good friend that when Jules left parties early and his wife invariably got drunk, Dominic made it his responsibility to see Tipsy Doris up the treacherous drive to Misty Mountain, now a mid-level executive at RCA. So again, this is mid-70s, we're setting this in. Dominic has bombed with Ash Wednesday. He's uh, bombed out with John Gregory and Joan Didion and played as it lays. That's a complicated relationship between brothers and sister-in-law that we are going to get into. But Dominic has, again, taken a mid-level job at RCA. Like, he just needs a gig. So Dominic no longer got an invitation to the Steins' home. In a way, it gave him enormous freedom no longer beholden to the Steins or people like them. Dominic became a receptacle, not only for stories of Hollywood humiliation he witnessed, but stories he had merely heard, like the one about Doris passing out drunk in her bathtub after a late-night party in London, Jules bringing a pillow to prop under her head so she would not drown, and her thinking he was trying to smother her and yelling for help. It's really a terrible story to repeat, isn't it? said Dominic, who repeated it a lot. He also coined a couple of great one-liners. Sit down, you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you, and I never repeat gossip, so listen closely the first time. That always got a big laugh. So what did he have to lose now? With reckless abandon. Dominic confessed to friends as well as people he had met for the first time about being thrown off the Hollywood merry-go-round, how the wife of the producer of Johnny Carson's talk show had disinvited him to a party at the last minute because a friend had not left for Europe after all, and she could only seat an even dozen for dinner. If I'm not mistaken, that's Janet de Cordova. Back to Hoffler. 
It hurt, but not as bad as Swifty Lazar dumping him from his annual Academy Awards blowout, which numbered 200 guests at the Bistro Garden. 12 guests was one thing, but when you were not in the top 200 of Hollywood, you were worse than dead. You were uninvited. Wow. Okay. Oh, goodness. This is going to get fun. All right. It especially galled Dominic that he no longer received invitations to parties where the hostesses had to replace the Steuben glass ashtrays with a dime store variety because a columnist for one of the trade newspapers kept stealing the expensive kind. He gets invited, but not me, Dominic complained. Suddenly, Lenny's taunt, which she did tell him, if all else fails, you can become a columnist, uh, looked prophetic, if still not a compliment. Maybe he should be a columnist, just to get invited to parties the way kleptomaniac reporters did. Instead, Dominic told his stories for free. Tony Kaiser met him in 1974, and among other reasons, they became good friends because, quote, Dominic was always very honest about his problems in Hollywood. It was one of his more endearing qualities, his utter honesty on that point, unquote, says Tony Kaiser. Also, Dominic knew everyone in Hollywood, and while Kaiser came from big money back east, he was new to town because I got a job working at Universal Television, he says. Kaiser began as the producer's assistant on Macmillan and Wife and quickly worked his way up to associate producer on television shows like Columbo and Rich Man, Poor Man. Fortunately for Dominic, Alan Carr could always be counted on to throw another party. At this point, Alan Carr is doing Alan Carr's thing, but he is not yet in his phenomenal blowout success that he will have in 78-79 because of the little movie musical starring John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John called Grease. That's going to set Alan Carr into kind of a different stratosphere. But Alan Carr is very much in the scene at this point. And uh, again, fortunately for Dominic, Alan Carr could always be counted on to throw another party. At least they had pizzazz, even if there were only a smattering of A-listers. In November 1975, Dominic entertained a few of his friends at a cocktail party. So November 75, just put that in place, friends. His doorbell at Spalding Drive rang and when he went to answer it, a uniformed officer greeted him with a summons. At least Dominic thought it was a summons. His guests had to wonder what crime he had committed. When you open the front door and someone is serving you a subpoena, your heart stops, said Dominic. Then he realized it was an Alan Carr joke and not only a joke, but an invitation to a party in honor of da 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 Truman Capote, to take place on December 15th, 1975, at the vacant Lincoln Heights Jail in Northeast Los Angeles. Dominic got the joke, lame as it was. Capote wrote in cold blood, hence the jailhouse theme. It was the way Carr's mind worked. 
Who cared if the novel had been published nearly a decade earlier? At least the party would be a good plug for Capote's acting debut in Neil Simon's Murder by Death, which was Truman's official reason for being in town. A more apt way to honor Capote, thought Dominic, would be a party in a restaurant decorated to look like La Cote Basque, which was the title of a chapter in Capote's long-awaited and still unfinished novel, Answered Prayers. That chapter in Esquire magazine was the real reason the author fled New York City. Lacote Basque, 1965, in quotes, so the chapter of Answered Prayers here, totally alienated Capote's good friend Babe Paley, and it was also said to have caused the suicide of Chorus Girl turned socialite Anne Woodward, who thought her resemblance to a husband killer in the short story hit too close to her Park Avenue apartment. Remember, Anne Woodward committed suicide November 1975 after the publication of Lacote Basque 1965. This party is happening a mere few weeks later. The night of Carr's Capote party, Dominic drove himself to the jail, a trek that took him past downtown L.A. and Chinatown and into forgotten Lincoln Heights, the city's dumping ground for all of its street maintenance equipment. Carr staged a faux riot at the entrance of the jail with actors dressed as escaped prisoners directing cars to the nearest parking area. Dominic might have brought his boyfriend, but Norman Carby was working that night. <laughs> A member of the costume catering company known as the Doodah Gang, uh, Norman Carby donned a cop's uniform to take guest mug shots, which wound up on a souvenir coffee cup. Carr spent the early evening as people arrived, screaming at members of this doodah gang. Do something, there are no ashtrays, they'll mutiny, he said of his guests, who included Peter Sellers, Diana Ross, and Lucille Ball. Others like David Niven, Charles Bronson, and Francesco Scavolo danced as The Link, a five-piece band, played jailhouse rock and killing me softly with his song. The guest of honor played along for a while. Truman Capote wore tinted specks and a gangster mix of a big-brimmed black borsalino, a double-breasted jacket, and what he called, quote-unquote, my Brazilian dancing shoes, which sported red leather and rubber soles. However, the experience of being one of the 500 well-dressed guests crammed into a space built for 300 convicts left Capote oddly unnerved. The guest of honor retreated to a cell to be alone. It was at this moment that Dominic, standing alone in another cell, caught his eye. He was also not in a party mood, at least not this party. Dominic says, there was such sadness in Truman's eyes. He never recovered from that snub of Mrs. Paley's. This was not his new milieu, Hollywood, and it wasn't 
up to what he was used to in New York. Ditto Dominic in Hollywood. Never had he identified more with the author of In Cold Blood. Okay, this is where... The story's important, but I want to introduce another name here, and we're going to go down this path in just a second. The journalist Dotson Raider knew both men. Dotson Raider, he's a novelist. He is really key into a lot of scenes, especially the scene down in Key West. So put Key West in some palm trees in, in your back pocket here. In the early 1970s, Dotson Raider met Dominic at some boy parties given by a film distributor in Hollywood. Raider recalls, Dominic was just this little guy who was nice and told stories about a lot of famous people. He was very gossipy and seemed to be using his storytelling. It was like Truman in a way, a way of getting attention, because Dominic wasn't physically prepossessing. It was the way someone who wasn't born a star could dominate a conversation or get the attention of people. Dodson Raider did not remember Capote being fond of Dominic. Dodson Raider says, What Truman found deeply annoying is Dominic wasn't just gay and quiet. He was gay and boastful about being straight. Dotson Raider sums up here, which I think is just such an interesting line. We were all captive to the times. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So sometime after Alan Carr's jailhouse party, Dotson Raider met for drinks with Dominic and Capote at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Raider notes you used to go in there and if you sat long enough, You'd end up with four or five people you hadn't seen in a while. People drift in who you know. A friend of Capote arrived unexpectedly at the hotel lounge. The woman's marriage to a movie star was not going well, and because she wanted to confide in Capote, the two of them went off to a corner to commiserate and drink. When the unhappy wife finally left, Capote returned to Dominic and Raider, She's in one of those marriages that end up either in murder or suicide, he told them. Dominic will add, there's no nice way to get out. And then Dotson Raider will note here, and that is how the subject of suicide came up. Dotson Raider, who had no idea that Dominic struggled with thoughts of ending his own life. That destructive impulse resurfaced more vigorously 
on Raider's subsequent trip to Los Angeles, where he had been invited to a party at Tony Kaiser's house in Malibu. Dotson Raider saw Dominic there. He had been drinking heavily. Dotson Raider suggests to Dominic, hey man, I have a car, let me give you a lift. And Dominic refuses, clearly, kind of being way too over the line to drive. And Dotson Raider insists, I've got a driver. I never drive in LA. I'm giving you a lift. And Dominic Dunn carries this little black bag with him that night. Like a doctor's bag, but it wasn't, said Raider. In their ride back to Beverly Hills, Dominic brought up his deep depression, that he didn't have any money, his career had tanked. He oozed self-pity. There's broke and there's broke, Raider told him. You're not broke. They talked about getting together the next day when Dominic mentioned that he would not be spending the night at his Spalding Drive apartment. He tells Dotson Raider instead, I'm checking into the Tropicana tonight, and then proceeds to give the address to the driver. And Raider asks Dominic why the Tropicana, and Dunn says, I've got friends meeting me there. And Raider's like, at the Tropicana? Yes, I do have friends, says Dominic. I know you have friends. You've got to drop me off there. Dominic refused Raider's offer to go to the motel with him. I'll see you, darling, Dominic said and was gone. A few blocks later, Dotson Raider notices Dominic's little black bag. He had left it in the car. Raider looked inside and, thinking he would have the driver take the bag back to the Tropicana, what Dotson Raider says. It was full of pills. Four bottles of pills, said Raider. Opiates and quaaludes. It didn't occur to me that he was going to kill himself. He was just going to take a trip on this shit, which is fine, but it's not fine if you're drunk. It will kill you. Rather than return Dominic's bag to the Tropicana, Dotson Raider took it back with him to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and later phoned Dominic to say he had given the bag to hotel management. Dominic could pick it up there at his earliest convenience. Something kind of incredible in that story. And y'all, I can't tell you uh, kind of what a jolt I get when in any kind of research I connect a spider web that I had not connected before. I think that story about Dominic and Truman kind of hanging out in the mid-70s. I mean, it does set their relationship. They knew each other in the 60s. They knew each other before that via Gore Vidal. We're going to talk about all that this season, but it's that uh, jolt of lightning that I get (laughs) when I connect things that you may not think are ever connected. So I (laughs) see the name Dotson Raider. He's a novelist. Went to Columbia, was a male hustler for a little while. I believe was married to Ruth Ford, Hollywood actress. Dotson Raider is key, essential, down in Key West. And Key West in the whole, I don't know, almost sort of 1920s vibe that was playing in Key West in the 1970s. Oh, goodness. Okay, I'm going to try to keep this linear-ish, but we are going to flip back and forth a little bit. Okay, I see Dotson Raider, and I know 
on a particular night in 1978, exactly where Dotson Raider and Truman Capote were together listening to a yet unknown Jimmy Buffett for the very first time singing his song, Margaritaville. This happened at Logan's Lobster House in Key West. Okay, so let's go down here and talk about this for just a minute. On the south end of Duval Street, just before you hit the water, there used to be a restaurant flanked by red fringed umbrellas with a thatched tiki bar inside. The sign for this restaurant reads, Logan's Lobster House. Sorry, I'm exerting this from Sarah Thomas from Keys Weekly, November 2018. And if you wandered into the seaside lot on the right night in the early 70s, you might have heard a long-haired young Jimmy Buffett play with his band. Jimmy Buffett says, The first gig we did as the Coral Reefer Band, we did at Logan's Lobster House, and it was a dollar a ticket. David, this is David Wolkowski. We're going to talk about him in just a second. David had a table on the front row, and at that table was Truman Capote, John Malcolm Brennan, and Dotson Raider, and a few other people. The David in question was David Wolkowski, longtime friend and patron of Jimmy Buffett. Now, part of the fun of this story, uh, Buffett plays Margaritaville in public for the first time a few days later. So a few days later after he writes it, Buffett is actually in Austin, Texas, and is breaking up with his girlfriend. And the original title of Margaritaville was Wasting Away Again in Austin, Texasville, which isn't quite as punchy. The story about this, uh, he went to visit a girl in Austin. Jimmy Buffett says there was the potential for a breakup. And after a couple of margaritas and a few tears, lady in question drives Jimmy to the airport so he can catch a plane back home to Key West because that's where Jimmy's living at the time. At the gate, Jimmy gets out his guitar and finds a hook in a new chorus. And he was going to call the song Wasting Away Again in Austin, Texasville. But <laughs> he gets on the plane and he has a few more drinks and he gets a better idea for the title. So Buffett plays Margaritaville in public for the first time again at Logan's Lobster House. <laughs> Jimmy Buffett will say about that table with David Wolkowski, Truman Capote, Dotson Raider, and John Malcolm Brennan. By the end of the song, they were all singing, searching for my lost shaker of salt. And that, Jimmy Buffett says, is when I knew I had something. Just close your eyes and visualize this. Like Logan's Lobster House, Key West, Dive Bar Restaurant. There's Jimmy Buffett. And at the front table, Dotson Raider, Truman Capote, David Wolkowski, uh, among others. So let me give you a little bit about David Wolkowski. It is in 1967 that old David hires architect Giannis B. Antonidas to help design a motel. And David Wolkowski wants 50 unique rooms to which 50 more rooms that face the ocean were quickly added. So this place is infamous in Key West. If you've ever been, here's the history of the Pier House Resort Motel. The Pier House Resort Motel is not only where Jimmy Buffett starts his career, but Bob Marley as well. The Pier House Resort Motel 
has a pretty well-known, if you're a parrot head place, the chart room bar. Oh, the chart room bar. Uh, Jimmy Buffett will credit David Wolkowski as the first guy to hire him. And what happens is the Pure House becomes sort of this magnet for celebrity and media types because of Wolkowski's kind of unique personality and laissez-faire attitude. So in the 70s, you've got Wolkowski building Jimmy Buffett. You've got a whole different blend of artists and creatives. This is going to intersect with our man Truman Capote in a way that is sort of interesting. So listen to this dishy bit. When writer Truman Capote arrived at the hotel. So Truman Capote is going to head on down to Pier House. Truman's going to spend his winter in Key West. And Truman asks David Wolkowski to like show him around. Let me see all the rooms you have in the Pier House and let me decide where I want to stay for the winter. Here's Truman looking at all the best rooms. So after viewing several choice units, David invites Truman Capote over for a drink to where David Wolkowski is living at the moment. This is uh, a 45-foot, two-bedroom, double-wide trailer covered in bamboo and parked 10 feet from the hotel's waterfront. Capote begs Wolkowski to rent him his trailer. I'll just live in your home, dude. Let me rent this one. Wolkowski finally agrees and will move into the Pure House Resort Hotel, his own hotel for the wintertime just to accommodate Truman Capote. Now, here's the thing I want you to know, is that Truman Capote's answered prayers were written in David Wolkowski's waterfront trailer. Oh, when Truman's writing answered prayers, this is where he's staying, this one little place with so many connections to history. So, <laughs> Truman Capote will hand discarded handwritten pages to David Wolkowski. Just like, thanks, man. Here's some gratitude for allowing me to write in your home <laughs> this trailer because, you know, Truman stays there for a while. Here's a little bit of a twist, though. Years later, the papers were stolen from Wolkowski's penthouse apartment high atop Key West's former Crest Five and Dime. If you've been to Key West, this is the CVS right now in Key West, but it was not always that. Wolkowski really does develop much of Key West. We're going to talk about another place here in just a second. Wolkowski will buy the former Crest Five and Dime. Wolkowski restores the building and rents out the ground floor to the department store, Fastbuck Freddy's. That was there for a while. The upper rooms were rented out to the Key West Parole Department. Wolkowski is quoted as saying, I never felt safer than when I lived above the parole board. The Capote papers were stolen by someone I know, not a parolee. Which is probably true. Now, David Wolkowski really does support art, real estate, all kinds of things. Again, that... Crest Five and Dime was Fast Buck Freddy's. Now it's the CVS. David Wolkowski has another building. And this building, if you have been to Key West, is the location of the restaurant 
Margaritaville. This particular building, Jimmy Buffett and David Wolkowski kind of made an agreement, and David Wolkowski lived in the upper apartment of that restaurant, Margaritaville in Key West, rent-free until his death in 2018. Jimmy Buffett was really, really grateful to Wolkowski and that whole Key West scene. Let's, I don't know, get into this story just a minute. I've got an interview here from Jimmy Buffett, but with him describing the Pier House pool hide scene, because Wolkowski is known for championing writers and supporting eccentrics and artists who now have become the defining set of Key West culture. Jimmy Buffett says about Wolkowski, he was so supportive in every way, from letting writers he knew stay there and putting up with our nonsense, including like Truman Capote, let me kick you out of your house for the wintertime. Buffett describes the Pier House poolside scene as a band of charming and multi-talented miscreants who were kept in line by David Wolkowski, playing the part of the bemused adult in the room. I don't think David ever paid me to be there, but he let me sing, and we'd just lay out by the pool and hang with the paying guests. Uh, one of Buffett's best friends, this is Larry Groovy Gray, who runs a catamaran sailboat school on the beach at the pier house. Jimmy says, Groovy always got along too, and at any time David had problems with our crowd, if something had gone wrong or we stayed too late, I'll never forget his voice. Oh, Groovy. And that meant something had happened. I'm talking about real artistic support. You could lay around the pool and not get thrown out. Jimmy will describe Key West at this point, 70s, right, as not only a musician's town, but a literary town, too. He says he was hanging with a literary crowd, Dotson Raider and McGuane, and he meets Jim Harrison, and Jimmy was like, I was just a bar singer on the street. I'd graduated from the University of the Chart Room and moved on to graduate work at Howie's Lounge. It was a time mythologized, romanticized, and riffed on by everyone from the guy at the package store to my grandmother. In 70s Key West, literary giants, rock stars, and pirates broke bread. Preferably Cuban bread. <laughs> Now, Jimmy Buffett mythologized in Key West, so is David Wolkowski, so is Truman Capote, so is Tennessee Williams, so are all of, I mean, God, just literary, musical, creative, eccentric geniuses here. Kind of a fun thing. The Coral Reefer Band does rehearse in an old gas station on Fleming Street where Tom Corcoran had a leather hat shop in Buffett's Louis Backyard days, so... Uh, Louie's Backyard is a bar. He lived in the house next to Louie's Backyard on Waddell Street. And this is funny, though. One of Tennessee Williams' boyfriends worked at Louie's Backyard. And on one or two occasions, I was hired to play a pool party at Tennessee's. Let's just say it was an interesting gig. And Tennessee Williams loved Hank Williams' songs. He is asked in this interview, does Jimmy take any credit or responsibility for this commercialized version of paradise now that Key West is? Rough edges smoothed and lawns manicured. And Jimmy Buffett says, I never thought it would be what it's become, but I'm not ashamed of any part of it. 
I made some mistakes along the way, but today it sure seems like an extension of what it was to us. Buffett tells a story about filming Tarpon, the 1973 rogue fishing documentary for which Buffett wrote the music. In Tarpon, Buffett says, they were interviewing Jim Harrison, and he said, Every place I've been to, they say I needed to be here 10 years ago. There's true. Uh, if you were just here a decade ago, it was way better then. God, so funny. Uh, Buffett continues, There's a lot of people I know from those days who still live in the past. Because it was a wide-open town, still a Navy town to a degree, and it was also a primary location for the marijuana business. It was very casual, and it had that kind of pirate mentality. Yet he attributes the enduring charm of Key West to its tolerance. Everyone had a place there. New Orleans was the magic city of my youth. I played on Bourbon Street. It has that same je ne sais quoi feel that you've heard about a place that's tolerant. Everyone has their version of Key West. I hope that people still have that. I still smell black beans and chicken cooking when I'm riding my bike around. It's much more gentrified, but it still has that authenticity. I relish the past, but I don't live in it. I don't know. I live in the past a lot. There was a lot of fun connections in that. Between Dominic Dunn, Truman Capote, Truman Capote, Jimmy Buffett, Dotson Raider, David Volkowski, we are going to be talking about Truman Capote's time in Key West a little bit further down along our way, but I wanted y'all to have all that good information as we are working our way through Capote's Coterie. They're not all ladies, believe it or not. That Truman Capote really got around. Friends, I think that is not done yet for the week. Don't forget to stay tuned on Friday for your first drop into Capote's Coterie. I hope y'all have the most fantastic week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for your support. Until we meet again this weekend, y'all, stay curious. Keep on investigating. Maybe play Margaritaville too, and just imagine... Truman Capote at the front table singing, still searching for my lost shaker of salt, aren't we all? Big love, everybody. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.